Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your gift to us. It doesn't wither, it doesn't fade, it produces fruit all of our days. We thank you that your word is true, that it's powerful, that it's able to do a work in our hearts that nothing else can do. We pray that you would take your word and use it today to accomplish all of your purposes in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you probably noticed some things in the text. For one, when I backed up to verse 22, you noticed that Noah did all that the Lord commanded. That was a phrase that was repeated, some version of it, uh, four times in this, beginning in verse 22 of chapter 6 and through chapter 7. And so I think it's fair to say that that is one of the themes that Moses is trying to draw our attention to uh, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to see that there was something here. That Moses obeyed. Uh, while this is a theme, I would say this is maybe 20, 25,000 feet up. If we go a little bit higher, you may remember one of the bigger picture themes uh, was back in chapter 6, verse 8, that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we, you may remember that word for favor can be translated grace, that God looked upon Noah with gracious eyes, but his obedience is a part of of God's gracious work in his life. Now, anytime we talk about God's grace toward us and our obedience toward him, we have to be careful. We joke about the little legalist in every one of our hearts. He or she is there, right? Every time, every day, it shows up trying to turn even the best of things into little means of performance. And we do the same thing when we come to this, so we have to be careful. We don't want to make our salvation about our obedience because we know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. At the same time, when we talk about God's grace, we don't want to dismiss obedience. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, Paul says in Romans 6. So then how does God's grace and our obedience fit together? That's one of the questions that I want us to think about today. There are other themes here in this chapter of Genesis. God's judgment, for example. You can't miss that. <laughs> it, it, it keeps coming up. This, the waves, the, the, the way that, that uh, it's written, e- even in, in English it comes through. That You, you sense that as you're reading, the, especially that last paragraph in chapter 7, you almost feel like you're in the waves. This mounting up of uh, water that was probably tossing the ark all around. God's judgment is certainly a theme. In our previous passage, we saw some of the same things mentioned there, so they're repeated. The wickedness of man, for example, was mentioned several times there. This is something that God wants to draw our attention to, that His justice, His judgment against the wickedness of man is right and good. But another thing to consider is what Jesus had to say about the flood of Noah. And in case you uh, don't remember this from Sunday school, Jesus did say some things about Noah. In Matthew 24, Jesus was preaching a sermon. He said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so here, Jesus takes Noah 
and this event and uses it as, as kind of a lesson, as a reminder that God will again judge the world. It will not be by water this time. From this judgment, there is only one way, though, of salvation. There's only one ark that people may enter into, and that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. But whether we're talking about the flood or whether we're talking about the judgment of God that is coming, neither of these are very popular today. You think of, um, if you had one of those signs out front, I'm not a fan of those signs, or you put the sermon title mainly because I don't have very good sermon titles. Uh, but I, when, I, when I was doing my undergraduate, I had uh, served in the Navy before, so I was working and, 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 and I had this 100-mile daily commute between home and college and the church that I was serving in. And it was in North Georgia, the heart of the Bible Belt. So I had the opportunity to pass a number of these little churches out in the country hills of North Georgia that had these signs. And this was 25 years ago. Um, I I joked uh, when Les and I got married, I was going to take pictures of these and create a book. I thought that would be really funny. Somebody did it later. And Leslie said I missed out on an opportunity. But one of, the, one of my favorites was this little church that said, Revival fires are burning. Step on in. And I thought, <laughs> I thought to myself, how many people want to go? Like, I don't fire. I, that usually, I don't think I want to go in. Well, if we had a sign out front and said something about the sermon this week was going to be on the judgment of God, I don't know that it would draw a lot of people in. Why is that? Well, we don't like talking about judgment, but if we do talk about it at all, we don't mind talking about judgment in the context of other people, other people groups, other periods of history. But we mind when (laughs) we're talking about us, right? When we think of us standing before a holy God who judges righteously, we know we don't measure up. We know that He is holy and we are not. And so judgment is scary, and rightfully so. And yet it is because judgment is scary that the good news of the gospel is such good news that we know that that judgment has been dealt with, has been met in the work of Christ. Later in that same sermon that Jesus gave where He spoke about Noah, He said the following, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You may think, where is the uh, part about faith there? You know, it sounds almost like a message of works. And if that's all you read, you might think that you had to go out and get really busy or that somehow this was a contradiction, but it's not at all. What Jesus is describing here is the fruit of those who trust in Him. The result of faith in Jesus is obedience. And so a result of our faith in Christ a part of that obedience includes 
giving a drink, welcoming a stranger, clothing the naked, or visiting those who are sick. Our faith is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. James talks about this in James chapter 2. Our faith produces works. Our faith produces obedience. And this was true of Noah. His faith in God led him to do all that God commanded him. God could have saved Noah if he was disobedient. God can do anything. But by God's grace, he saved Noah through obedience. Noah's living faith producing that obedience. And here's a key. Obedience to God is never burdensome. It may be hard. It may and often does include suffering. But it's never burdensome. It always leads to peace and to freedom. Sin, on the other hand is the opposite. It's usually not hard. In fact, sin is often the easy thing to do. It can even seem to ease suffering at times. But it never leads to peace or to freedom. It leads to strife and to bondage. And so as we look today at Genesis 7, let's look at some of the repetition and some of the details that we see in how Noah did all that God commanded him. One of the first things in verse 1 that we notice, Noah was counted righteous in this generation. That's something we've already seen. We've talked about this, that this wasn't simply, it was a contrast to the wickedness of his generation, but it wasn't just that. Uh, Noah lived by faith. And you say, well, it's not in the text. We jumped ahead and we looked in Hebrews chapter 11. By faith. Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That's how Noah lived his life. He walked with God. He walked in faith. In verse 4, he's given a seven-day notice during which the family and the animals are to come into the ark. And here we're given some additional information. It's not just pairs. It's pairs and up to seven pairs of the clean animals, which shows us something about the sacrificial system. Had the sacrificial system been instituted? Well, not the Mosaic sacrificial system because Moses hasn't come along yet. But some kind of sacrificial system was in place that God had communicated. Although we don't have it in Scripture, it was clear with Cain and Abel. They were bringing sacrifices to God. And it was clear here that God was preparing animals to be sacrificed as well as those who would carry on uh, in, in living for, uh, after the flood. We see in verse 4 that the rain's going to last 40 days and nights, which is a tremendous event in and of itself. You think that it rains a lot in Florida this, this past week. Every day you think more rain. You know, it's been one of those weeks we had kind of a dry spell, but now there's all this standing water because we've had rain every day. And you think, can we just get one day without rain? This was 40 days of 24-hour nonstop raining. It's a significant event to consider and think about, not to mention being in an ark at this time. We'll talk more about that in a second. But 40 is also significant as a number as well. We see 40 in Scripture a number of times. The Israelites wandered around the wilderness for 40 years, time of testing. Goliath, I don't know if you remember this, Goliath taunted the Israelites in battle for 40 days before David defeated him. 
Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights before the temptation that he faced with Satan. So there's this, this interesting thing about 40 days and testing and trial and so forth that we see in Scripture. Another thing that's mentioned is God's going to blot out every living thing from the face of the ground. We've seen this already. It's repeated again. In other words, besides those in the, in the ark, uh, Noah and his family, the animals that are there, everything else that lived on the ground, you notice that's mentioned a number of times, so the exclusion would be the animals that lived in the sea, everything else was going to die, which is an incredible judgment to think about. This is the only time that this has happened, worldwide judgment. And some have called this a reset to creation, that, that, that God in his uh, disappointment and, and man's sin that we looked at in chapter 6 decides to reset creation. It's a, uh, a restatement from what we saw in chapter 6, demonstrating that this was going to be a definitive act. There's a lot that we see in the details, not only in the repetition that these things were actually going to happen, but even in the information like the, the, the month, the day, of the year that this happened. This wasn't an allegorical lesson that was written in Scripture to teach us some moral thing. This really happened. The flood actually occurred. Possibly one of the most significant things that we see in chapter 7 is that in God's judgment on all the earth that would fall on the wicked, He would save a remnant through the obedience of one man. Does that sound familiar? Right? Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous, pointing us to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And so we see this foreshadowing of the work of Christ, that we would one day through the obedience of one man, be saved from our own sins. One who would come who would be truly righteous and completely righteous. His obedience would save us. That would then lead to the ultimate reset of creation when all things will truly be made new. This is what we're looking forward to. Permanently, completely, perfectly, everything will be made right, will be made as it should be. Revelation 21.5 and he, he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We look forward to that day. The obedience that God calls us to is possible because Jesus obeyed. Therefore, obedience is a joy. It's a gift to us, a good gift from God to us. God doesn't require our obedience to harm us or to withhold any good thing from us. This is a lie from Satan. It's a lie that I'm sure every one of us in this room can uh, testify to having had to face or defeat. That somehow God is trying to get us or withhold something from us or do something bad to us because He doesn't love us. And the reason we think this way is because we're fickle like this. It's how we operate. It's how we in our own hearts treat love. God's love is pure. God's love is undefiled. And Psalm 84.11 says, No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is for you in Christ. The theme then of Noah's obedience in this chapter is met with the theme of God's provision. 
And here's the point. When God calls us to obey, He provides all that we need, even if it doesn't make sense or we can't see it. When God calls us to obey, He provides all that we need, even when we don't see it or it doesn't make sense. You think of examples in Scripture. We talked about David and Goliath. How did that make sense? It didn't make sense to anybody. That's why everybody was trying to keep David from running out there on the battlefield. It didn't make sense. This wasn't going to work. You think of Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the wall and the obstacles he faced. No amount of human understanding said, this is a good plan. This is going to work. You think of Daniel continuing to pray when he was threatened with the den of lions, and yet he did. You might look back in your own life and think of ways and times that God provided for you. He called you to do something, and He did provide. But it's not only true when God calls us to do something and we obey. It's also true when God tells us not to do something or forbids us something. I'm speaking here of temptation, something that we can all identify with, that we face on a daily basis, where we decide whether to obey God or not. Think of 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Speaking specifically of temptation, God promises not to allow us. Now, some people take this verse and they kind of misunderstand it a little bit and think that God won't ever give you more than you can handle. He gives us more than we can handle all the time so that we run to Him. Here, speaking specifically of temptation, God will not allow you to be tempted where there's not a way of escape. God will not allow you to be tempted without a way out. He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So whether God calls us to do something or tells us not to do something, He always provides. But we have to remember that we walk by faith. We don't always see the provision at the time. And this is where we often get in trouble because this is where we doubt. We don't think God's good. We think this is a trick. This is another thing. He's come to get us. But just because we don't see His provision doesn't mean that we should disobey. We walk in obedience, watching Him provide and care for our every need. Now, one other aspect to this is timetable. We've talked about this a number of times. His timetable is not always our timetable. And if you think about Noah's obedience, Noah endured this obedience or or obeyed over this enduring time, 100 years to build the ark. I mean, this was a day in, day out, a long time to be, you know, thinking about, am I a nut? You know, did I really understand? Is this the right thing to be doing? Not to mention heckles and so forth that he experienced from others. Noah's obedience was over the long haul and we're called to do the same. And so you may be in the midst of something right now that doesn't make sense, some kind of mess, some kind of disappointment, and you think that God isn't working or providing. You may be tempted to think that God isn't good or that He's out to get you. Don't fall for these lies. God intends all things for good for those who He loves and are called according to His purpose. The story isn't over. So don't give up on obeying and walking with God just because things don't make sense. Continue with Him. Don't get weary. Don't grow tired in doing good. As Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap 
if we do not give up. Now, I mentioned God provided for Noah as he obeyed him. Let's consider what a few of those provisions were. One, God told Noah to take pairs of animals on the ark. That sounds cute, and when we look at the murals in the nurseries around the, the, in the churches all over the country, it, it always looks very orderly, and I kind of wonder if that really is what it looked like. Because if you've ever chased a pet that didn't want to do what you said, or maybe it's just ours who isn't very obedient, um, a family of five chasing a dog through a house trying to catch him, you know what this looks like. If you've ever been on a farm chasing chickens or a horse that gets out, or a cow. I mean, it's comical to watch people do this if you're not the one trying to chase them because it can be very... Is that what Noah faced? Well, uh, I don't think it was. I think Noah was able to benefit uh, from God not only commanding him to do what he was to do, but God also commanded the animals. Look in verse 9. Two and two, male and female, they went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. There's some, some indication there that there's order, but look even again in verse 15. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. So Noah wasn't scrambling around. God provided the animals to get into the ark, whatever structure, order, it, it, it happened, it occurred. Notice in verse 16, another provision. And the Lord shut him in. Now that may not seem like a big deal. And you think if Noah was able to build this big ark, certainly he created some kind of rigging to get the door open and closed, however big it was. But here, I I think this is almost like a fatherly touch. That in the midst of all the judgment that was occurring, that God comes almost like a father tucking his child into bed at night. Think about what the family was thinking. I mean, God gave them some information, but we have no indication that he gave them a detailed roadmap of what was about to happen. They would be in this ark for months. The rain would last over a month. I mean, you see the language of what it was like to be in the ark as we, as we read that last paragraph of chapter 7. Look in verse 17. The flood, water, or the flood continued, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. Verse 18, the waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were, uh, were covered. It goes on in verse 20 and then shifts the same kind of pattern, that repetition and building, uh, that, uh, almost uh, poetic in, in its sense, uh, showing the, 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 the complete judgment of God. Repetition, vivid description. So the trial of being on the ark was no small deal. There were so many unknowns. You think of the sounds, okay? A bunch of wood strapped together, being twisted in the ocean. If you've ever been in a boat, uh, in a storm, you know what the the helplessness that you feel. You, You know, you think you're in control when you've got the rudder and the waters are calm, but then when the waves come up, it doesn't matter what you've got, you're just thrown and tossed around. That was some part of their experience. You think of the sensation of those waves being in the ark. You think of the darkness, especially at night. I mean, no light, zero light. The helplessness that all they must have all felt. And yet God had closed them in. God had tucked them in. God was with them. And this promise that was given from Moses to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31.6, 
is repeated throughout Scripture, and it is true for all who trust in God. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. These words are promised again to us in Christ, that He will never leave us or forsake us. So even in God's judgment on the earth, in in which He wiped out all living things, He was with Noah and his family. He would never leave them or forsake them. That's all the hope that they had. And folks, that's all the hope we have. Our hands, our lives rather, are in the hands of God. Now, we have our own securities and safeties that we put in place that are facades of security and safety. They make us feel better about life. Uh, Fellow PCA pastor this past week, uh, a few years older than me, had a stroke, blood clot, went to his brain. He's going to be okay. But the things that he's written in, 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 since being flown to the hospital, going through treatment, and now coming out, about the immediacy and the frailty of life is sobering. That's where all of us are. You know, we take our vitamins. We get our physicals. We wear our seat belts, and we buy cars with five-star crash safety you know, ratings. We save money for retirement. We put our money in banks that are insured. We wear our sunblock. We eat our broccoli. We brush our teeth and we lock our doors at night. But the God who made all things holds our lives in His hands. And we will all stand before Him. We live at His mercy. He is holy and He is right to judge our sin because of who He is. And our sin that has separated us from Him, has fractured that relationship, is only dealt with in what we see here at the table this morning. God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The bread, the wine, the body and blood of Jesus, given not only to remember His death, it's given to nourish our faith, it's given to point us forward in celebration, to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And yet the meal does something else for us. Something else. It calls us to obedience. This meal calls us to walk with God. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, we read, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Two things going on in those verses. One, that we discern what we're doing. We're not flipping about this. We understand what is happening. This is not a superstitious good luck meal. We are to soberly and sincerely consider the body and the blood, the death and atonement for our sin. But we're also to examine ourselves. We're to look at our own lives. We're to confront our hearts, confront our own sins and repent and seek God's forgiveness. One of the reasons that we prepare a week before, like last Sunday, in reading the moral law is to to announce to ourselves, oh yeah, communion's next week. I need to be thinking. I need to be examining. I need to be considering. Jesus said in John 6, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And there is the provision once again. Those of us who are trusting in Christ are given the means to obey. It isn't just that we get a fire insurance card and say, good luck. We're given Jesus Himself. We're united to Him. He abides in us. 
And this is, the ta- this is what is expressed in this table. There is power to obey. He doesn't simply give us a list of do's and don'ts. He gives us himself. God is with us. To obey is not simply a privilege. To obey is a delight. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the flood, at Noah, at animals and arcs, waves and rain and judgment, Lord, may we not miss the bigger picture of your saving work. And not just saving Noah and his family and those animals from the death that was to come to all, but the salvation that you, the promise that you extended through Noah so that that promise given back in Genesis 3.15 would continue. Indeed, the seed of the woman would come one day and crush the head of the serpent. Lord, for that we're thankful that as we hear your word, as we sing together, and now as we come to your table, that we know when Jesus died on the cross that he said, it is finished and it's done. And there's nothing we can do to add to. There's nothing we can do to earn. And yet, Lord, it is our privilege to obey. Can you help us get that? That to walk by faith is to walk in obedience, in delight, in thankfulness, in thanksgiving, with grateful hearts for all that has been done for us. Lord, would you do that work in us so that you would be pleased, that others may come to know what we know in Christ, the hope of nations. We pray this in his name. Amen.